Hello everyone. Sorry I'm starting two minutes late. I was about to go on air and my doorbell rang and it was the postman. Which of course means that you have to deal with him. And then also, because he's handled the packages, I had to wash my hands 20 seconds, which is the right thing to do. Be careful out there. If in doubt, wash your hands. It's the right thing to do, okay? Um, have you got your mantra? My 20 second mantra is saying... Danny DeVito's, Danny DeVito's, tiny hands, tiny hands. Barack Obama's, Barack Obama's, camper van, camper van three times. That takes 20 seconds. You've got to have a mantra. It's revolutionized how I wash my hands, genuinely. Hello, everyone. Believe it or not, this is Of Mice and Men. Good morning, precious. Nice one. And thank you, Dylan, for talking to me about AI. Yeah, I suspected as much. Grr. Anyway, let's get cracking. I've got to warn you before we begin... We're going to start off with the rude stuff, and um, <laughs> I will scar you. Just, just want you to understand, emotionally, generations of pupils have been scarred by this first bit we're going to read, by me, consciously, and frankly, I'm proud. So um, brace yourselves, this is a bit early morning for uh, this sort of material. Um, just to recap, of course, George and Lenny now are in the ranch. Key point, it's a dangerous place, don't you think, already? We've already got this sense it's, it's back the nearest place is Soledad. Solitude, yeah? So it's in the middle of nowhere. We've already heard about when they were in weed, how it was dangerous, how they were run out of town by a, a mob. It's a titting law into their own hands. And also, uh, you've got to remember that we've seen Curly now, and Curly feels dangerous, doesn't he? Curly... According to Candy, spoils for fights with big guys. The biggest guy of all, of course, is Lenny. So, this is all, uh, it's all feeling dangerous. It's a scary feeling place, isn't it? Yeah? Okay. Let's crack on. Because we're about to meet a new character. Curly's wife. Oh, yeah. So, let us begin. Classy, huh? Both men glanced up. The rectangle of sunshine in the doorway was cut off. A girl was standing there looking in. She had full, rouged lips and wide-spaced eyes, heavily made up. Her fingernails were red. Her hair hung in little rolled clusters, like sausages. She wore a cotton house dress and red mules, on the insteps of which were little bouquets of red ostrich feathers. I'm looking for Curly, she said. Her voice had a nasal, brittle quality. George looked away from her and then back. He was in here a minute ago, but he went. Oh, she put her hands behind her back and leaned against the door frame so that her body was thrown forwards. You're the new fellas just come, ain't you? Yeah. Lenny's eyes moved down over her body, and although she did not seem to be looking at Lenny, she bridled a little. She looked at her fingernails. Sometimes Curly's in here, she explained. George said brusquely, well, he ain't now. If he ain't, I guess I'd better look someplace else, she said, playfully. Then he watched her, fascinated. George said, if I see him, I'll pass the word you was looking for him. She smiled archly and twitched her body. Nobody can't blame a person for looking, she said. Okay, Curly's wife. Like I said, prepare to be emotionally scarred the rest of your lives. Remember I said yesterday this was initially written as a play? And so because of that, it has this sort of dramatic quality. It often feels like it. You could imagine it, the picture of it on, on a set. And these very sort of physical entrances by the characters are, are fairly obvious. So we've seen the boss. Remember the boss? Okay, standing up time, guys. Is my doorway? Yep, I need that door frame as a prop. Right. So we've had the boss, the squat, stocky guy who's got authority, standing with his thumbs either side of his belt buckle. Standing there, that shows his authority. You've got Curly, who when he enters, rushes straight in. He's a man of action and violence and comes tearing in and out. Yeah, and you immediately get this sense of everything's fast and aggressive with him. And then you've got Curly's wife. Curly's wife, I'm so sorry about this. I'm going to damage you now. Oh, I can't see the door frame from there. Oh, no, 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 Nah, okay, I'll just improvise with this side. Curly's wife comes in 
Now we already know that she's judged by the men as being a tart, don't they? Yeah. They said she's got the eye. She's looking out for the, uh, looking at the other men, even though she's just married curly. And when she comes in, her body language is extremely flirtatious. She's leaning against the doorway. The description of her, her red lips, her dress, her red mules of ostrich feathers. These are high-heeled shoes with decorative big feathers sticking out of them. This is not how the farmer's wife is supposed to dress. Yeah, This is her dressed up looking to impress. She's got her hair all neatly done. One little bit of uh, Steinbeck's imagery I don't enjoy in this book because he keeps, he does it again, talking about her hair in ringlets like sausages. That doesn't seem quite a romantic image or glamorous image I'm sure she's aiming for or he's aiming for. I find it weird. I've never been all that attracted to women with cocktail sausages hanging down over their face, but hey, each to their own. So she's there like leaning, oh, I'm so sorry about this. She's there leaning against the, the door frame. She teases them. She ain't going nowhere, yeah? She, at one point, thrusts, it says he thrusts her body towards them, which obviously is a sort of sexual, you know, sexual area pointing towards them. You know, she is flirting like hell. That bit where she just goes, you know, starts playing with her thumb and forefinger. She's teasing, she's toying with them. George is uncomfortable with her. He wants her to go straight away. He can see that there will be trouble because he knows what Curly's like. Lenny's just looking her up and down, and even though she wants to make an impression on them, it says she bridles. Ooh, she feels a little uncomfortable. She sees him and she thinks, oh, he's a little strange. I'm not sure I want attention from him. Um, she's got her voice has a nasal, brittle quality, which I thought I replicated beautifully, um, which, which is, again, supposed to be sensual. Yeah. Sorry, don't, sorry about how I said that. Yeah, full, rouged lips. She's eyes are heavily made up. She is not dressed for work. Remember I said that all the men are dressed in denim because it's hard wearing. There's going to be all mud and poo and stuff everywhere. And she's dressed up like this. Um, and you have a little point I wants to make here. She looks at her fingernails, yeah, just like all casual. You know, she's not moving anywhere. Um, I, guess I, I guess I'd better look someplace else, she says playfully. She's not going anywhere. She knows they're uncomfortable. She knows she's being flirty and she's enjoying it. Um, and then that whole thing about twitching her body, again, has a sort of maybe sexual hint to it. She's drawing attention to her body. Um, and also the way she rubs up against the doorframe, the way she twitches, almost feline, perhaps, are those words we'd use to describe a cat? Um, maybe. Okay, we'll move along a little bit because we're going to meet another important character now. And after this, there's only one more important one to meet. Um, like I said yesterday, all the main characters compiling in at this point. Again, almost like a play, introducing them to the audience. I was going to say something else then. What was it? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, just to remind you with your comments, and thank you for keeping them coming in. But obviously, I'm not able to answer them generally during the reading, but I'll come back at the end and address them. I did notice there, though, a couple of you asking, what chapter are we on? Um <laughs> Different versions of Mice of Mice and Men have different chapters. It is the second chapter. So the first chapter is then by the water. We are now about halfway through, maybe a bit more than halfway through the second chapter. But mine hasn't got chapters in it. It's weird. Mice and Men, for some reason, seem to have lots of different formats. Some have chapters, but they're not numbered. I'm just confusing matters there, aren't I? Anyway, let's crack on. Uh, she's, she's there flirting. But then there are footsteps behind her going by. She turned her head. Hi, Slim, she said. Slim's voice came through the door. Hi, good looking. I'm trying to find Curly, Slim. Well, you ain't trying very hard. I've seen him going in your house. She was suddenly apprehensive. Bye, boys, she cried, called into the bunkhouse, and she hurried away. Can I just point out, Steinbeck doesn't waste his words. That word, apprehensive. If you're apprehensive, you're scared of what might be to come. She, the first time she... He really hears where Curly is. She is apprehensive. She seems frightened. That's, again, not healthy, is it? Oh, he's there at home. Oh, my God. He's been going around looking for her as well. So, yeah, frightened. George looked around at Lenny. Jesus, what a tramp, he said. So that's what Curly picks for a wife. She's pretty, 
said Lenny defensively. Yeah, she's sure hiding it. Probably got his work ahead of him. Bet she'd clear out for 20 bucks. Then he still stands at the doorway where she'd been. Oh, she, she, she was pretty. He smiled admiringly. George looked quickly down at him and then took him by an ear and shook him. Listen to me, you crazy bastard, he said fiercely. Don't even take a look at that bitch. I don't care what she says and what she does. I've seen him poison before, but i never seen no piece of jail bait worse than her. You leave her be. Lenny tried to disengage his ear. I, 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 I never know nothing, George. No, you never. But when she was standing in the doorway showing her legs, you wasn't looking the other way, neither. I, I never meant no harm, George. Honest, I never. Well, you keep away from her, because she's a rat trap if I ever seen one. You let Curly take the rat. He let himself in for it. Glove full of Vaseline, George said disgustedly. And I bet he's eating raw eggs and right into the patent medicine houses. Lenny cried out suddenly. I don't like this place, George. This ain't no good place. I want to get out of here. We gotta keep it. To, we gotta keep it till we get at stake. We can't help it, Lenny. We'll get out just as soon as we can. I don't like it no better than you. He went back to the table and set out a new solitaire hand. No, I don't like it. He said, "For two bits, I'd shove out of here. If we can just get a few dollars in the poke, we'll shove off and maybe go up the American River and pan gold. We can maybe make maybe a couple of dollars a day there. We might hit a pocket." Lenny leaned eagerly towards him. Let's let's go, George. Let's get out of here. It's mean here. We've got to stay, George said shortly. And shut up now. The guys will be coming in. From the washroom nearby came the sound of running water and rattling basins. George studied the cards. Maybe we ought to wash up, he said. But we ain't done nothing to get dirty. Um, I want to point out a few things here. Sexism. The way George talks about Curly's wife. Now, we've got to be subtle and careful here. But that's the beauty of English, of course. Equivocal language. You don't have to say, like say in maths, two plus two is four, and that's that. You can have um, different theories. You can put different ideas together as long as you say you know, it might be this or it could be that. So that sort of language is really crucial in English literature. Um, speculate. Say it could be this, could be that. Does that make sense? <laughs> What's the point in asking you that? Yeah, I can hear you all calling from the valleys. don't know why you're all in South Wales. You should have stayed at home. But, so you, you know, we could say that this is a good example of sexism. Look at all the ways that George describes Curly's wife here. So that, that's not she, that's what Curly picks for a wife. Like he just chooses, men can just choose what wife they want. Um, and then he calls her a bitch. Calls her <laughs> women them. She calls her a piece of jail bait. So the idea of that is that a woman who gets you in trouble. You fancy her, she gets you in trouble. It's jail bait. She, she's the bait that leads you into jail. Yeah? Um, she was showing her legs. She's a rat trap. Wow. He also says that Curly's eating raw eggs and writing to the patent medicine houses. Basically, he wants to you know, perform for his wife. Those are things that will improve him sexually. Drink of water for effect. Um, but on the other hand, like I said, so there's on one case, you could say um, that she's it's a good example of sexist language and the way women are seen then and are portrayed in Of Mice and Men by the ranchers. But on the other hand, she is flirty as well, isn't she? So there, <coughs> there are two sides to this. It's subtle. Steinbeck's reflecting real life, isn't he? People aren't simple. Life's not just black or white, even though a lot of people like to make you think that. Um, she is definitely flirtatious. She she is not appropriate, really, is she? She's just married, but she's dressing like this to try and get attention. We will learn more of why she is like she, how she is later on. But it's not really appropriate behaviour. But on the other hand, she also is fulfilling a stereotype. So it's also examples of sexism. So you could, you could legitimately say both things about her, both that she is acting inappropriately and the men view her inappropriately. Yeah? Oh, my throat's going here. Bit of water. Also, Lenny is quite right, isn't he? Saying, I don't like this place. This ain't no good place. And George says that he'd like to leave. But they want, they've got this dream of the farm. They want to stay a little bit more uh, longer. Make a bit more money to save up towards this dream of a farm. Anyway, here comes the most remarkable paragraph in the book. 
I'll be honest, I've read this so many times teaching this book. And um, honestly, I've uh, at first I hated this paragraph and now I get it. Um, this is slim to the last stuff, apart from Crooks, the main characters. And this is the most amazingly exaggerated description ever. So it said about opening introductions of characters, slim. It's unbelievable. He is described like he's the perfect man. Um, it's completely unrealistic. And this paragraph absolutely doesn't fit in with the rest of this book. This book is so realistic and gritty. And then this is just crazy. But it's deliberate. Slim is an important character in this book, and he's a very different type of character from any other character in the book. So, here we go. A tall man stood in the doorway. He held a crushed Stetson hat under his arm while he combed his long, black, damp hair straight back. Like the others, he wore blue jeans and a short denim jacket. When he'd finished combing his hair, he moved into the room, and he moved with a majesty only achieved by royalty and master craftsmen. He was a jerkline skinner, the prince of the ranch, capable of driving 10, 16, even 20 mules with a single line to the leaders. He was capable of killing a fly in the wheeler's butt with a bullwhip without touching the mule. There was a gravity in his manner and a quiet so profound that all talk stopped when he spoke. His authority was so great that his word was taken on any subject, be it politics or love. This was Slim, the jerkline skinner. His hatchet face was ageless. He might have been 35 or 50. His ear heard more than was said to him and his slow speech had overtones not of thought, but of understanding beyond thought. His hands, large and lean, were as delicate in their action as those of a temple dancer. He is the perfect man. He is not a normal character, and we'll get to this more later on, but he's this sort of central key... Man, he sets the moral tone. Oh, we'll talk about this more as we go along. But the, the exaggeration in this, the way he moves with majesty. Majesty is, is a word basically describing ro loyal, uh, not loyalty, royalty. He moves like he's royal. He's important. Um, he's the prince of the ranch. He can drive 20 mules with just a single line to the front mules. That's how talented he is. Remember, in those days... Things with engines are going to be more expensive, so a lot of farmers will use mules or horses to pull equipment. Yeah? He can drive 20 at a time. He can kill a fly on the backside of the mule with his whip without even touching the mule. Skill. He has gravity in his manner and this quiet so profound all talk stopped when he spoke. He has presence. Imagine you're in a classroom messing about and then suddenly the head just walks in and stands in the doorway like, the, like the, the boss of the ranch did. He's got presence. You shut up. Yeah? Slim's like that. Everybody respects Slim. Remember, my wife was on. We made a guest appearance yesterday. Oh, and there she is, running over the hedgehog with the lawnmower in the back garden. They, um... <laughs> Ooh, a family of them. Oh, that's ironic. That's like running over the mouse in the poem of Mice and Men's Named After. I'll, I'll do a separate broadcast, I think, on that. Anyway, jeez, that's a real massacre. Um, anyway, he... Oh, yeah, my wife said about Curly wore the high-heeled boots because he wanted people to respect him. People didn't necessarily respect him, but he wanted people to. Well... Slim doesn't have to. Slim's got authority. He's got gravity. You listen when he speaks. I'm just going to close the conservatory door here. Oh, conservatory door. I'm so middle class. That's a bit better. I have now trapped my cat in the conservatory. She's asleep, so let's hope that she... Uh, doesn't wake up because she's not going to be very happy with me. And she does run the house, to be fair. He hears more than is said to him. Um, he, his slow speech has overtones, not of thought, but of understanding beyond thought. So he understands more than is said to him. He can understand in a very deep sense. Uh, when he speaks, 
you can tell he's understanding at a deep level. Look at the way he greets George and Lenny. Unlike Curly, who was aggressive, or Candy, who was cautious at first, he's just welcoming. He's just a decent man. He smoothed out his crushed hat, creased it in the middle and put it on. He looked kindly at the two in the bunkhouse. It's brighter than a bitch outside, he said gently. Can't hardly see nothing in here. You and you guys. Just come, said George. Gonna buck barley. So what the boss says. Slim sat down on a box across the table from George. He studied the solitaire hand that was upside down to him. Hope you get on my team, he said. His voice was very gentle. I got a pair of punks on my team that don't know a barley bag from a blue ball. You guys ever buck any barley? Hell yeah, said George. I ain't nothing to scream about, but that big bastard there can put up more grain alone than most pairs can. Lenny, who'd been following the conversation back and forth with his eyes, smiled complacently at the compliment. Slim leaned over the table and snapped the corner of a loose card. You guys travel round together? His tone was friendly. It invited confidence without demanding it. Sure, said George. We kind of look after each other, he indicated Lenny with his thumb. He ain't bright. Hell of a good worker, though. Hell of a nice fella, but he ain't bright. I've knew him a long time. Slim looked through George and beyond him. Ain't many guys travel round together, he mused. Don't know why. Maybe everybody in the whole damn world is scared of each other. It's a lot nicer to go around with a guy you know, said George. A powerful, big-stomached man came into the bunkhouse. His head still dripped water from the scrubbing and dousing. Hey, Slim, he said, and then stopped and stared at George and Lenny. This is a minor character. This guy's Carlson. You're not going to get him... Um, you're not going to get him coming up in the exam as a, a character on his own. It's worth knowing about him. He is important, but he's a minor character. He doesn't have enough about him for you to really write about him alone. Um, look at the way he walks in, says hi to Slim. And now when he sees the new guys, he stops and stares and notice how he will immediately become friendly because Slim introduces them. It's like, you know, oh, if Slim says they're all right, they're all right. These guys just come, said Slim by way of introduction. Glad to meet you. <clears throat> Wrong voice. Glad to meet you, the big man said. My name's Carlson. I'm George Milton. This here's Lanny Small. <laughs> Glad to meet you, Carlson said again. He ain't very small. He chuckled softly at his joke. He <laughs> ain't small at all. He repeated, uh, Men, I ask you, Slim, how's your bitch? It's a dog. I was not being offensive. I seen she wasn't under your wagon this morning. It's a dog. <laughs> Yeesh. Just lying her pups last night, said Slim. None of them. I drowned four of them right off. She couldn't feed that many. Got five left, huh? Yeah, five. I kept the biggest. What kind of dogs do you think they're going to be? I don't know, said Slim. Some kind of shepherds, I guess. That's the most kind of scene around here when she was in heat. Carlson went on. Got five pups, huh? Going to keep all of them? I don't know. I have to keep them a while so they can drink Lulu's milk. Carlson said thoughtfully, well, well, look at here, Slim. I've been thinking. That dog of candies is so goddamn old, he can't hardly walk. Stinks like hell, too. Every time he comes in the bunkhouse, I can smell him for two, three days. Why don't you get Candy to shoot his old dog and give him one of the pups to raise up? I can smell that dog a mile away. Got no teeth, damn near blind, can't eat. Candy feeds him milk. He can't chew nothing else. George been staring intently at Slim. Suddenly a triangle began to ring outside, slowly at first and then faster and faster until the beat of it disappeared into one ringing sound. It stopped as suddenly as it had started. There she goes, said Carlson. Outside there was a burst of voices as a group of men went by. Slim stood up slowly and with dignity. You guys better come on while there's still something to eat. Won't be nothing left in a couple of minutes. Carlson stepped back to let Slim precede him. Look at that, eh? He's like, he goes out first, he's the boss. And then the two of them went out the door. Lenny was watching George excitedly. George rumpled his cards into a messy pile. Yeah, George said. I heard him, Lenny. I'll ask him. A, a, a brown and white one, Lenny cried excitedly. Come on, let's get dinner. I don't know whether we got a brown and white one. Lenny didn't move from his bunk. You, you ask him right away, George, so he won't kill no more of them. Sure, come on now, get up on your feet. Lenny rolled off his bunk and stood up, and the two of them started for the door. Just as they reached it, Curly bounced in. You seen a girl around here? He demanded angrily. George said coldly, about half an hour ago, maybe. Well, what the hell is she doing? George stood still, watching the angry little man. 
He said insultingly, she said she was looking for you. Curly seemed really to see George for the first time. His eyes flashed over George, took in his height, measured his reach, looked at his trim middle. Well, which way do you go? He demanded at last. I don't know, said George. I didn't watch her go. Curly scowled at him and turning, hurried out the door. George said, you know, Lenny, I'm scared I'm going to tangle with that bastard myself. I hate his guts. Jesus Christ, come on. There won't be any damn thing left to eat. They went out the door. The sunshine lay in a thin line under the window. From a distance, there could be heard a rattle of dishes. After a moment, the ancient dog walked lamely in through the open door. He gazed about with mild, half-blind eyes. He sniffed and then lay down and put his head between his paws. Curly popped into the doorway again and stood looking into the room. The dog raised his head, but when Curly jerked out, the grizzled head sank to the floor again. A few little things to pick out there. Carlson says that Candy should shoot his dog. Now, you know, we, a lot of us at least, will be town folk and we'll think that sounds really brutal. Um, and it, it does sound really brutal to me as well, I'm a big animal lover. Um, but remember, this is a dangerous place. This is also farm life. You have to be brutal on the farm. As Slim said, his dog had nine puppies, so he drowned four straight away because it's just a matter of maths. Uh, the, the dog can only produce so much milk, so she'll feed five, she can't feed nine. So he keeps the five biggest, strongest looking ones. Um, you know, that is part of farm life. Carlson saying the dog's no good anymore. Okay, a dog maybe needs to fulfill a purpose on the farm. It's no good anymore. It's suffering, put out of its misery. But let's be honest, Carlson has seemed to be have a different agenda, which we'll investigate more soon. He was more, just get rid of the dog. It's annoying. Yeah. Um, notice how he goes to Slim. Slim is the authority. He goes to Slim to try and get some sort of judgment or opinion or support on this. So there's that, which we will return to. Then there's Lenny, of course. He's heard there's puppies. He wants a puppy. Um, Curly coming back. Said he's got ants in his pants. Yeah, he's still looking around for his wife. It sounds a very healthy relationship, doesn't it? And he sees George for the first time. She's fixated on Lenny the first when they met before because he's massive. He seems to see George for the first time. And what does he do? He weighs him up. He looks at his body. He weighs him up as a potential opponent. Are you not a bit of a psychopath if the first thing you do when you meet a person is work out if you could beat them in a fight? Yeesh. And then there's that bit at the end, and I said, didn't I, about um, it looking like a play. The old dog comes walking back in very slowly and settles himself down, bless him. He's, well... It's, it, you can imagine it, you can picture it in your head. You can imagine it as an end scene in a play before the curtain comes down. Just that moment, thoughtful moments as the dog on its own walks in, this tired, ancient, struggling dog, and awkwardly settles itself down. And of course, it also makes us think about what has just been said. Carlson's just been in there saying, kill that dog. And so... We are feeling emotion now towards the dog, aren't we? Steinbeck is manipulating our emotions. We then look at the dog and we think in the silence as the dog settles about, poor thing, what could happen to the dog now because of what Carlson said. Does that make sense? Stop asking that question. Yeah. It's poignant. P-O-I-G-N-A-N-T. Word of the day. Poignant. Something that just makes us feel reflective and sad when we see it, yeah? So, we'll do a bit more, shall we? A little bit more. Where shall I get to? Oh, I know where I'll get to. Let's get to where we find out what actually happened in Weed, shall we? And then I'll stop taking up your time. Although we'll ask some questions as well. Although there was e uh, ugh, I'll start it again, normal speed. Although there was evening but brightness showing through the windows of the bunkhouse, inside it was dusk. Through the open door came the thuds and occasional clangs of a horseshoe game. 
and now and then the sound of voices raised in approval or derision. Slim and George came into the darkening bunkhouse together. Slim reached up over the card table and turned on the tin-shaded electric light. Instantly the table was brilliant with light, and the cone of the shade threw its brightness straight downwards, leaving the corners of the bunkhouse still in dusk. You can imagine it on stage, can't you? Slim sat down on a box, and George took his place opposite. There wasn't nothing, said Slim. I would have had to drown most of them anyway. No, ta- no need to thank me about that. George said, It wasn't much to you, maybe, but it was a hell of a lot to him. Jesus Christ, I don't know how we're going to get him to sleep in here. He'll want to sleep right out on the bar with him. We'll have trouble keeping him from getting right in the box with them pups. It wasn't nothing, Slim repeated. Say, so you sure was right about him. Maybe he ain't bright, but I've never seen such a worker. He damn near killed his partner, Bucking Barley. There ain't nobody can keep up with him. God almighty, I've never seen such a strong guy. George spoke proudly. Just tell Lanny what to do and he'll do it if it don't take no figuring. He can't think of nothing to do himself, but he sure can take orders. There was a clang of horseshoe and iron stake outside and a little cheer of voices. Slim moved back slightly so the light was not on his face. Funny how you and him string along together. It was Slim's calm invitation to confidence. What's funny about it? George demanded defensively. Oh, I don't know. Hardly none of the guys ever travel together. I hardly never seen two guys travel together. You know how the hands are. They just come in and get their bunk and work a month. Then they quit and go out alone. Never seem to give a damn about nobody. Just seems kind of funny. Cuckoo like him and a smart little guy like you traveling together. He ain't no cuckoo, said George. He's dumb as hell, but he ain't crazy. And I ain't so bright neither. I wouldn't be bucking barley from a 50 and found. If I was bright... If I was even a little bit smart, I'd have my own little place and I'd be bringing in my own crop instead of doing all the work and not getting what comes out of the ground. George fell silent. He wanted to talk. Slim neither encouraged nor discouraged him. He just sat back quiet and receptive. Classic head of ear trick. Don't talk. The person you're talking to say everything. Keep quiet. But Slim's doing it for a different reason, isn't he? Slim's brilliant. He's perfect. George can trust him. There are very few friendships in this book. As I said yesterday, after George and Lenny, probably the most sincere friendship is Curly and his dog. Oh, precious, what does derision mean? Derision. So I just saw that over my shoulder. I'll come back to most of the comments later. Um, Derision uh, means that uh, you're making fun of somebody. So it's the people playing the game, isn't it? So the voices are raised either in approval because they're playing horseshoes. If they throw, they've got a stake in the ground, a piece of metal, not... not, not a piece of meat, a wooden or metal stake in the ground sticking out and then they throw horseshoes at it and you're trying to actually get the horseshoe to hit the stake and stay on it, yeah? And so if you get a good shot, voices raise an approval. Well done. If if not, if you do a bad shot, people wind you up in derision. Ah, that was rubbish, the derision. You deride someone, you're making fun of them. Um. So... Slim, like I said, Slim is this perfect character, and in a, a book which lacks relationships, Slim is friends to everyone. And this is key. One of Slim's key roles, you learn about George. George has got Lenny to talk to, but he's not going to talk to him in the sense of um, you know, having deep conversations and explaining about himself. Yeah? Um, whereas, so you need, if we're going to learn about George, Steinbeck needs to put a character and he can talk to. And so Slim is there partly for that reason. We learn about George. And even though George is cautious and defensive, see with Candy, took a while for him to really relax and think, okay, I trust him. However, with um, Slim, he relaxes and he's comfortable. He opens his heart, as he will in a moment when he explains what happened in Weed. So that's part of Slim's role in the book, to be George's confidant. And that allows us as readers to learn about George. It allows Steinbeck as a writer to teach us bits about George. Yeah? And can I just say, Dylan, again, over my shoulder, I just saw your gag. Well played, yes. Whoever hits the steak gets to eat the steak. Nice idea. That was Dracula's first mistake. Right, so George will start to explain. And a lot of those questions we got asked in the first chapter will now be answered about George and Lenny's relationship. It ain't so funny, him and me going around together, George said at last. Him and me was both born in Auburn. 
and old his Aunt Clara. She took him when he was a baby and raised him up. When his Aunt Clara died, then he just come along with me out working. Got kind of used to each other after a little while. Hmm, said Slim. George looked over at Slim and saw the calm, godlike eyes fastened on him. Funny, said George. I, I used to have a hell of a lot of fun with him. Used to play jokes on him because he was too dumb to take care of himself. But he was fun. Made me seem goddamn smart alongside of him. Why, he'd do anything I told him. If I told him to walk over a cliff, over he'd go. That wasn't so much damn fun after a while. He never got mad about it, neither. I beat the hell out of him and he could have bust every bone in my body just with his hands and he never lifted a finger against me. George's voice was taking on the tone of confession. Tell you what made me stop that. One day a bunch of guys were standing around up on the Sacramento River. I was feeling pretty smart. I turns to Lanny and says, jump in. And he jumps. Couldn't swim a stroke. He damn near drowned before we could get him. And he was so goddamn nice to me for pulling him out. Clean forgot I told him to jump in. Well, I ain't done nothing like that no more. He's a nice fella, said Slim. God don't need no sense to be a nice fella. Seems to me sometimes it just works the other way around. Take a real smart guy and he ain't hardly ever a nice fella. George stacked the scattered cards and began to lay out his solitaire hand. The shoes thudded on the ground outside. At the windows, the light of the evening still made the window squares bright. I ain't got no people, George said. I, I seen the guys that go around on the ranches alone. They ain't no good. They don't have no fun. After a long time, they get mean. They get wanted to fight all the time. Yeah, they get mean, Slim agreed. They get so they don't want to talk to nobody. Of course, Lenny's a goddamn nuisance most of the time, said George. You get used to going around with a guy and you can't get rid of him. He ain't mean, said Slim. I can see Lenny ain't a bit mean. Of course he ain't mean, but he gets in trouble all the time. Because he's so goddamn dumb. Like what happened in Weeds. He stopped. Stopped in the middle of turning over a card. He looked alarmed and peered over at Slim. You wouldn't tell nobody. What are you doing, Weed? Slim asked calmly. You wouldn't tell? No, of course you wouldn't. What are you doing, Weed? Slim asked again. Well, you've seen this girl in a red dress. Dumb bastard like he is, he wants to touch everything he likes. Just wants to feel it. So he reaches out to feel this red dress and the girl gets lets out a squawk and that gets Lenny all mixed up and he holds on because that's the only thing he can think to do. Well, this girl squawks and squawks. I was just a little bit off and I heard all the yelling so I comes running. And by that time, Lenny's so scared, all he can think to do is just hold on. I sacked him over the head with a fence picker to make him let go. He was so scared he couldn't let go of that dress, and he's so goddamn strong, you know? Slim's eyes were level and unwinking. He nodded very slowly. So what happens? George carefully built his line of solitaire cards. Well, the girl rabbits in and tells the law she'd been raped. The guys in weed start a party out to lynch Lenny, so we sit in an irrigation ditch underwater all the rest of that day. Got only our heads sticking out of the water and up under the grass that sticks out from the side of the ditch. And that night, we scrammed out of there. Slim sat in silence for a moment. Didn't hurt the girl none, huh? He asked finally. Hell no, he just scared her. I'd be scared too if he grabbed me. But he never hurt her. He just wanted to touch that red dress like he wants to pet them pups all the time. He ain't mean, said Slim. I can tell a mean guy a mile off. Cause he ain't. And he'll do any damn thing I... Then he came in through the door. I'm gonna stop. Yeah, I think. Um... So, what do we learn about Lenny and George? The reason George is with him? Lenny's parents have died and his Aunt Clara's looking after him. When Aunt Clara dies, Lenny and George know each other and Lenny just starts following George around and they stick together. George likes it because it makes him look good because Lenny's not clever and he can, he can make him do things, stupid things. I guess he's trying to impress his peers, isn't he, really? And um, one of those things is... To make him jump into the Sacramento River. Google it. It's a big river. Um, and Lenny can't swim. But he does it because George has told him to. And he's going to drown. And they just about managed to pull him out. And even then, Lenny's thanking George for saving him. So at that point, I think George develops a conscience, doesn't he? And realises, I can't treat the guy like this. This is bad. I'm taking advantage of him. Um, we have a couple of things established very firmly and repeated about Lenny and the things we should remember. He's not mean. He's a nice guy. He does bad things, but he doesn't mean to. 
but also he's very strong, as we re-emphasized a couple of times. And there's this key thing, which is maybe the key theme of the book, which I haven't touched on all that much yet. I'm going to let it develop a bit, but we need to talk about it now. George saying he's got no people. He's seen guys that go round on the ranches alone. That ain't no good. They don't have no fun. After a long time, they get mean. They get wanting to fight all the time. Steinbeck's key message here. You've got to have friends. You've got to have people around you. Having friendships make you a better, softer, nicer person. And that's really, really, really important. And that in some ways is the whole thrust and the whole message of this book. Steinbeck in the Depression saying that people were selfish, acted just for themselves, and as a consequence, there was a lot of hatred around. Whereas if you are not selfish, if you act in the interest of the whole, if you act in the interest of you and your friends and your little personal society, people are happier, people are better. If you're on your own, you just get mean. And Slim agrees, and of course, if Slim agrees or something, it means it's right. Slim is almost Steinbeck in the book, like the inspector is priestly in the book and an inspector calls. And he says, yeah, they get mean. They get so they don't want to talk to nobody. And so, as George says, Lenny's a damn nuisance most of the time. Remember the first chapter when he loses his temper with him? But he still loves him. The fact of the matter is it's better to have somebody with you, even if they're a bit hard work like Lenny, than if than to have nobody with you. Yeah? Uh, he goes through what he did with weed in a bit more detail. So basically, remember, he likes to touch soft things. He sees the girl, little girl in the pretty dress. I say little girl. I think we should emphasize that. We're probably talking about a sort of 14, 15-year-old. Um... He goes up to her because he thinks the dress looks nice. He grabs it and she's terrified. Wouldn't you be terrified if this massive, super powerful guy just grabs you? She starts screaming, so he panics. And because he panics, he just keeps holding on. And that amazing thing, Lenny's so terrified, clinging on, that uh, George has to hit him on the head with a fence picket to get him to let go. He's trying to pull him and shout at him and he can't. Lenny's in such a panic, he just freezes and keeps holding this poor girl. So he hits him on the head with a fence picket. A fence picket, you know, when you have those white fences? Well, then you have a fence, sorry. You know, you've got upright bits of wood and then the slats going across. Well, the upright bits are pickets. He hits him with one of those on the head. That's all, that's what will make him let go. Wow. And while we're at it, woof. Um, so he manages to do that. And then the girl says she's been raped. And there's a lynch mob. So remember what I said before about this. This is a, a lawless society that Steinbeck's trying to present you in the middle of nowhere and they deal with matters themselves. A lynch mob, lynching someone is hanging them, killing them. A lynch mob is a group of the local men who will go out and bring justice. If somebody's done something wrong, you'll go out, you'll catch them and you will punish them. And it may well be by killing them. Lynch mob strongly implies that, doesn't it? So yeah, they were chased off and they had to hide in an irrigation ditch. So, you know, when, you, when you're farming, have you ever seen on farms, you know, fields, and then they have ditches alongside them with water in them. And that's an irrigation ditch so that there's always water to keep the soil moist. And they have to climb into one of those and hide. They, he said there's grass over the top of the bank. So they hide all day in the water up to their necks with the grass covering their faces so they can't be seen and the dogs can't track them. And then at night they run out of there. Wow. Okay, that's probably where we should leave it for now, I think. Is there anything more? No. Let's have a look. Half 10 tomorrow. Please join me again. I'm quite enjoying doing this. I massively enjoying doing this. What a, quite was the wrong word. Let's have a look at some questions. See what we've got. Oh, nice, sir. Uh, uh, Senor T-O-M-A-B You can sing the chorus to Mr. Brightside When you wash your hands That's good as well, good tip I remember I said at the start about 20 second mantras We need to get a mantra, seriously It's really helped me to make sure I wash my hands properly Seriously Let's see 2 plus 2 is 4 and that's that Yeah, thank you very much Damon Yes um, Ethan, right now Ethan saying, uh, oh, if you've got any more questions Throw them in now Although Curly is, he says, so although Curly is next in line to lead the ranch and be the boss, he actually does less authority than Slim because Slim is seen as royalty in the ranch. Yes, 100%. Right, yeah. I mean, 
the boss owns the ranch. Slim. Uh, let me start that again. The boss owns the ranch. Curly clearly is like the heir to the throne. So he's second in command, strictly speaking. But clearly, everyone respects Slim. And they don't respect Curly. I mean, he's a jerk. How could you respect him? Um, it's that the point my wife was trying to make yesterday about him wearing the boots to show he's got authority. The boss has authority. He is the boss. He can sack you like that. Curly has not earned respect. He has not earned that sense of authority. So he wears those boots to try and send a message. He bosses people about. But people don't respect him at all, but they massively respect Slim. So he is much more of an authority figure. Um, I guess in a little... Oh, I don't know. Is this a stupid comparison? Um, when I first started teaching, obviously I didn't have a clue. I couldn't find my backside of both hands. I'm slightly improved now, although not as much as you would hope. And one of the things I knew was that people didn't know teachers' first names. Or When I was a pupil, people were quite fascinated to try and find out teachers' first names. And I thought, oh, this must be some sort of authority thing. If they don't know my first name, I am above them and they have to respect me. And for, for you know, the first couple of years, I was a little wary of letting anyone know what my first name was. Now, hey, my name's Mark. It's on my wall in my classroom, actually, uh, with my Mark Griffiths is ready to fight Muhammad Ali newspaper front page. True story. Um, fine. I don't feel concerned that my authority will be chipped away by whether someone knows my first name or not. If you call me Mark in the corridor, I'll go nuts for these. But that sense of, oh, I'll lose authority if people know that about me is gone. So I forgot what time point I'm trying to make with that, really. Curly feels he's got to keep sort of artificial barriers in place to, to show authority. But Slim doesn't have to. He just is respected. Does that make sense? It makes sense in my head. But nowhere else. Damon, you were late. Shock, I remember. You can catch up. I'll, this will automatically post onto Facebook with all the comments coming on in sequence as they were made. If you want to watch it and on, on catch up. I'm on catch up. Oh, Griff player. Grifflix. Um, but also, I don't mind pointing at you for. But also, I post on YouTube. I post on Instagram. And I also make a podcast, put it onto SoundCloud. So there are lots of ways to catch up with them all. They're all out there. Um... <laughs> Dylan's good steak joke. I like that. Um, David's right, because you overslept, can I go through things? I'm sorry, mate. Like I say, it's hard for me to see comments while I'm reading. But like I said, just go back. Just go back and go for it, mate. You can, the moment I stop recording this, this will be on Facebook, well, you know, I say the moment, a couple of minutes later. And then by mid-afternoon, it'll be on YouTube, Insta, and SoundCloud. Okay, dokie. Kyle answered my question for it, and Aiden did. Thank you very much. Um, Dylan, do you record at the same time, or do you download the video later? Um, I could, obviously, you're right, download it later. I happen to record it at the same time anyway, because then I can try and get the YouTube video, say, up straight away. Because I edit out you know, the bit at the start with the music. I leave that on for 10 minutes just to get people in, and I leave the bit at the end on in case people want to have questions. And there's nothing I can do about that on the Facebook stream. That will just go up as it... As came out but on the other platforms i edit out the start and the end so that you don't have to sit there for ages so because of that i record it myself anyway because it's just a little bit of editing work to be done so i'd like to get cracking straight away um oh joanna thank you that's very kind of you and you're an outstanding person yourself i remember you very fondly and ethan good man nice let's see so this time back saying the same sort of message as priestly the community is key do you think this is to do with war and depression? Yes and yes. I 100% agree. There is no coincidence here, is there? Steinbeck and Priestley, both writing... Hang on a second. What exact date was Mice and Ben written? Uh, 37. So just before the Second World War. But in the midst of depression, um, Mice... Uh, Priestly writing during the Second World War, having come through that same depression. It's a three years difference in writing it. They are both clearly seeing the way of the world and how things are going. Um, Steinbeck, in writing this, will have seen Hitler and Mussolini rise in Europe and the rise of right-wing politics, extreme right-wing politics. He will have seen the Spanish Civil War, which is a horrific sort of right-versus-left 
battle which decimates Spain. He'll have seen this, and so he probably can see that bad things are coming. Um, and then Priestley's in the middle of the war, and they're both living through the Depression as well. So absolutely 100%. They're both sending the same uh, more left-wing message of we should all stick together, we should show more kindness to each other, we should not just be looking after ourselves. I did make the point yesterday, it's a bit similar to what we're going through now, aren't we? We're going through an extreme crisis, and you've got some people who are pulling together and trying to help the other people, and you've got some people who are hoarding toilet rolls and other things, which means that other people can't get them. You know, hand sanitizers, paracetamol, toilet rolls, milk. You have to be sharp to get them. Well, I mean, milk's not pasture drink. So some people are being selfish, looking out for themselves and making the situation worse. And some people are trying to help everybody and not hoard and are looking to try and make the situation better. So yeah, absolutely, 100%. That's absolutely no coincidence. No coincidence whatsoever. Steinbeck, I've got a great quote from him. I haven't got it to hand. I'll bring it tomorrow. Talking about how when you get to know a man, you can't help but love the man, if you like it. Once you get to know somebody, you will like them. Um, and that's sort of, that's a key message throughout this which I'll go into later. Um, right, so, chaps. So, Dylan, I can't understand your last message, but I'm a, I'm dead, so you know that. Um, anyway, I'm going to go on to the end screen now. I'll see you tomorrow at half past ten. But if you want to ask any more questions, I'll leave that running for about ten minutes, and if there's any questions there, I can either answer them in text or I can address them tomorrow, okay? Thank you very much for joining me, and uh, see you tomorrow. <laughs>